Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We enter the last week of July and it's still all over the place. It doesn't look very summery out there, I have to say. Uh, there was a lot of floods going on yesterday, uh, particularly in London and other parts of the southeast of England. Uh, we'll be talking about that coming up a little bit later on. Uh, but as far as the way we are... Last week I said it was kind of limbo-like, wasn't it? We weren't quite sure whether we were coming or going. We didn't really know whether there was a good piece of news or a bad piece of news. Freedom Day wasn't quite as free as we thought it would be, uh, particularly with the COVID vaccines, uh, the vaccine passports coming out and everything else. So here's what I'm seeing at the moment. Masks are coming off in some places. COVID cases are dropping all over the place, uh, all the time. Traffic lights are flashing uh, in many different ways. And the pandemic continues apace. Even Julie Hartley Brewer had to do her show from home this morning, thanks to the mad system which pinged her because of a plane she was on over a week ago. The world has officially gone mad. And today, we expect to find out even more workers will be given exemptions from having to self-isolate because it's destroying the everyday lives of people and stopping commerce dead in its tracks. There's already things that aren't happening as a result of too many people being off. Even bin collections have apparently been affected uh, because too many bin men have been pinged. Ping men. I mean, what is going on for heaven's sakes? Marvellous, isn't it? Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is ending his own self-isolation tonight and is planning a crackdown on crime. That's right. Apparently, uh, it involves targets for answering the phone and assigning actual police officers to do investigations. What is it, Sherlock Holmes? I mean, there's a phrase which I can't say on the radio, but you know which one I mean, don't you? Also, meanwhile, the channel traffic isn't going down anytime soon. Today we hear of TikTok videos circulating in Europe promising to bring illegal migrants here for £20,000. I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon either. First up this morning, it's John Rental, Chief Political Commentator from The Independent, with his take on the coming week in politics and the kind of general madness of the way everybody's feeling. 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens joins us later on with a view on the floods that have hit Europe and Britain in the last week. He says plenty of people saw them coming. 
but nobody seems to have done anything about them. What a surprise. Plus, he'll be telling us why being called bonkers by Dominic Cummings is something of a badge of honour. As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you hearing? What are you seeing? And what are you doing in this first proper week of the school holidays? It seems very quiet on the roads out there today. 03444991000. Plus, we're taking you off to Spain to find out what life is like there with Johnny Seifert. And we're looking at the numbers and crunching the COVID statistics with Jamie Jackson. Remember, right here, uh, it's the only place to find out. Jamie Jenkins, I should say. Uh, this is the only place to find out what is really going on because we are the home of common sense, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Uh, now on television, of course, it is the original, it is the best, it is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And by the way, if you haven't done it yet, do go to talkradio.tv uh, and get yourself um, an app. Uh, from the App Store, if you can as well, Talk Radio TV, and start watching us uh, in full glorious HD, proper cameras, proper colour, proper noise, and proper vision. That's what we do. Nobody else does it quite as well. John Rental is here, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I didn't recognise you because you've been in that uh, makeup department downstairs, haven't yes. you? You've yes, yes. No, I, was, some... I was telling the girls this morning that you've now scared John Rental off to such an extent that he won't come back. <laughs> Uh, until you promised never to go anywhere near him again. <laughs> yeah, well, they did. They tried to. They tried to discipline my hair, but they've uh, they've really succeeded with yours. Yes, I rather like it actually. I must say, but thank you for noticing anyway, because it's I've made the effort. It's nice to be noticed for having done so. Um, <laughs> are, are you like me? Uh, similarly, I mean, last week I thought we were sort of in limbo. This week, uh, I'm not sure what the next stage down from limbo, but closer to hell is. I think that's where we are now. No, no, not at all. We're, we're, we're under the limbo dancing bar and we're now uh, we're now able to stand up and um, dance. So uh, because the crucial thing that's happened is that the number of infections is coming down. Yes. Uh, I don't think there's any question about that now. Uh, so when uh, Professor Neil Ferguson said last week that uh, it was almost inevitable that we were going to get to 100,000 uh, infection, new yes. infections a day, uh, it seems to have turned around at about half that, about yes. 50,000. And Sir Keir Starmer was also very keen on that 100,000 a day figure, wasn't he? Because he kept asking Boris Johnson, what are you going to do when it gets to 100,000 a day? Well, uh, you shouldn't have asked that question, should you? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I mean, to be fair, Sajid Javid actually uh, said he thought it was going to hit 100,000 uh, a day. Uh, that was uh, that turns out to have been uh, too pessimistic. And yes. we're now on the, on the downward slope. Is he, gonna, uh, is he going to issue another apology, do you think? <laughs> well, I thought I thought he did the right thing in uh, issuing in, in deleting that tweet where he accused people of cowering. I don't from, think he uh, did accuse anyone of cowering, though. He just said that we as a nation should not be cowering. I don't should, think it was disrespectful to anybody. I think we are becoming well, so ridiculously oversensitive to this stuff. Well, yes, I, I don't think it was a serious mistake, um, but I think there were people who would who who are shielding, um, who feel that it's it's sort of implying. Uh, that uh, they're cowardly, uh, so I think that I think I think it's quite right. To well, if the cap fits, I mean, you know, you wear it. I don't think it implied yeah. that at all, though. I mean, I think I just think people. I mean, unfortunately, John, there are every, there are people in every aspect of law and society uh, and and sociology who will take offence at almost anything that is said because it's, they think it applies to them. We can't run society like that. Yes, you can. Well, no, I think I think being polite is very important. Well, and, I mean, uh, I probably was... offend somebody every single day of the week, but I'm not going to apologise. It's not my job. That is absolutely an outrageous thing to say. That is not my job to offend people. My job is to inform people and entertain them. <laughs> well, Sajid Javid's job is, uh, is as a politician, so it's a bit more 
it's a, it's a bit more of a problem for him if he offends people. So I think it's quite right to to, to back off, apologise quickly, and move on. Yes. And uh, the, the most important thing is that actually Sajid Javid has shifted the balance uh, of of power in government. He's uh, he, you know it used to be Michael Gove and Matt Hancock uh, versus Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson in that uh, quad mm. of ministers. Uh, they were evenly balanced, and now we have a a, a three to one majority in favour of opening up and. Uh, getting society and, and, and life back to normal. And I think that's that's healthy. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a, for a while, it did look um, yeah, extremely finely poised because people were still worried about the increasing number of infections. But now that that has turned around, I think that is a hugely significant change. Yes. And I think public opinion will follow. Well, I'm pleased to hear you say that, John, because this, only this morning I heard mealy mouth types still saying things like, well, of course, you know, it could be that there's a lag. It could be that uh, this is a false dawn. It could be that the reason the numbers have dropped is because schools have stopped testing and nobody's now uh, proving themselves to be positive because people have gone away on holiday. I mean, any number of ridiculous re- excuses, which they never use, by the way, when it goes up, but they only use when yeah. it goes down. Well, yeah, but the problem is that um, we optimists have been uh, have been caught out before, uh, and Boris Johnson himself has been caught out several times, mm. uh, three times, very seriously. Um, he has tried to it, tried to suggest that you know everything's everything's about to turn turn out fine, uh, and then he got smacked in the face. Mm. I mean, it happened in March, uh, twenty twenty. It happened in uh, in October last year and it happened again uh, around christmas and, and and the new year so you can understand why he might be a bit cautious uh, and things may well turn turn bad again but i think that the vaccines have made the difference this time yes uh, and i do think um, we are seeing light at the end of the tunnel i don't think there's any doubt about that but i think there is still some way to go uh, because when you think about life returning to normal and how much now now you can do there's still an awful lot you can't do um and specifically i talk about travel because not just talking about us going somewhere else, but people coming here. Because, again, yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine at the weekend uh, who works in the hotel business. 8% occupancy in a hotel in London. Apparently, that's the average occupancy rate. And that is not sustainable for any business, no matter how big they are. No, that's right. I mean, travel is the one the one big remaining uh, thing. But I, I think we should celebrate the fact that you can do almost everything else. Um, normally now, and I think that's uh, that's wonderful. And I think yeah, uh, but I mean that's quite it's quite a big thing that you can't do, particularly for families, John. And I mean I count my own in that because lots of people would like to go away, but you can't even really even plan to go away. I mean the best we can come up with uh, is this ridiculous idea that you wait for the next announcement, which is likely to be the first two or three days of August, and then you basically yeah. book somewhere and then you shoot off. When we see what's happened to Julie Hartley Brewer today, um, you know she comes back from holiday on a plane where she gets pinged a week after she's been off the plane to say she has yeah. to self-isolate for four more days at home. It's madness. Uh, yes, I think I think it's time to drop that uh, that requirement. I mean, uh, for for double vaccinated people, I think there's there's no need for it. Mm. Um, but you know, I mean, public opinion is really not uh, not behind that yet. Um, so I think yeah, but I we're not. A- we shouldn't be governed by public opinion, John. I mean, you and I have this argument every time you come on about what the polls say, <laughs> and you know we don't need to. We don't need to repeat it every time. But seriously, we're not supposed to be being governed. We didn't elect the public to run the country. We elected Boris Johnson and the Conservatives yeah. to run the country. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I mean, but Boris Johnson has has got out ahead of public opinion. I mean, if you remember, uh, all the opinion polls suggested that people were against uh, the the stage four. Uh, unlocking 
um, whenever it was, 19th of, uh, of July. Yeah. Um, and yet Boris Johnson went ahead with it. Yes. He was he was nervous about it because, as I say, he's been burned badly three times before. Uh, and so you can understand why he might be a bit hesitant. But I, but to be fair to him, I think he has led public opinion. Yeah. I think the government... Well, is thank God. To- well, thank God, because it shows you as well how fake public opinion in, in terms of the way it's represented in polls is, because there's an awful lot of people who are now enjoying their so-called newfound freedom since July the 19th. So, you know, clearly they're not the people that have said we don't want it. No, that's true. I mean, and it's difficult to interpret public opinion. I mean, the, the most wonderful thing uh, last week I heard was a focus group where, of course, they said, oh, yeah, the rules, rules are, ought to be more more restrictive. And uh, yet yeah, de- Boris is definitely making a mistake in uh, in easing the restrictions. Uh, but then you ask the members of the focus group what they were doing. And there was a woman who was turning her phone off when she went shopping. <laughs> uh, she didn't get pinged. Right. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah, I think public opinion is a bit more complex. And I think I think Boris Johnson has been right to lead public opinion in the direction of opening up. Well, I mean, even Dan Hodges uh, wrote, I think, in the last couple of days on Twitter that actually everything is happening the way Boris Johnson said it would happen. Um, and so actually people should now be well, getting, people should now be getting behind him. Yeah, I mean, but that that hasn't always happened. I mean, the problem is he is he has made mistakes so many times before that I think. Uh, that people are reluctant to uh, to assume that he's got it right well, this time. Or, or you could you could argue equally that he hasn't made mistakes, but he has been unlucky with the way that the virus has then decided to take a turn. Because I've always believed, John, that the virus has done whatever the virus does, and there's a limit yeah. to how you know King Canute or otherwise can 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 stop anything from happening or make something else happen. They really can't. Yeah, uh, no, absolutely right. And I think we're in the final stage of uh, of a it's like a Star Wars movie, isn't it? Where the where what the, do you mean? There's going to be eight of them. <laughs> yeah, well, possibly. But no, I mean, the, it, you know, the, the big, big baddie, the latest Delta variant, um, which came along right towards the end, just as we thought everything was getting all right mm. and we get a variant comes in. Uh, but this time, I think it has actually been uh, been seen off. And I think, uh, you know, if if those figures continue to, to head in the right direction, then this is the last uh, the, the last um, uh, sort of false ending of the of the story if you like mm. uh we will actually get through to the to the to the final stage of, of of something like normal life but i mean obviously travel is going to be the last thing that yeah that, that and i've got a, i've got a theory about that so stay with us and i'm going to bring my theory to you very shortly john rental is with us chief political conversation with the independent we're going to take a short little pause uh, don't forget go to the talk radio uh, app store and find talk radio tv there uh, you can also find us at talkradio.tv because we are the home of common sense we are Talk Radio. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB Plus, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. A lot of public opinion on my Twitter feed seems to be suggesting that Sajid Javid was wrong uh, to apologise. John Rittle doesn't agree. Uh, John, here's my theory about um, uh, the travel business. I think they're going to try and hold on until the end of the summer holidays to try and make it so difficult for so many people to go anywhere um, that very few people will. Although I understand about half a million people are currently abroad. I'm not quite sure how they're managing to do that, but good luck to them. (laughs) 
What? Who's who's they? You mean the government is going well, to try? Well, I think and... I think the government are trying to make it last this whole kind of you know uncertainty because you know for my p- purposes, I mean particularly given what's happened to Julie Hartley Brewer, I can't risk going abroad uh, on the basis that either one I could get caught up uh, taking a COVID test which then went positive for one reason or another and I couldn't come home, yeah. or I came home and suddenly they decided to change wherever I was to a different amber colour or amber plus or red or something like that, you know, or indeed get pinged by the same way that Julia did. So, you know, we can't really book a holiday um, and nobody really can with any great surety that that, that, unless you you don't care if all of those things change. Yeah, no, well, I doubt if I doubt if it's deliberate. Uh, These things are always these things are always chaos and confusion rather than conspiracy. But you're right. There are it is slightly puzzling that the they're going to drop the uh, the requirement to isolate for double vaccinated people uh, on the 16th of August, which is a strange time to do it. And the, and the other puzzle is why they've uh, why they put France on this amber plus right. uh, category, why they invented this amber plus category, especially for France, just on the basis of apparently this beta variant, um, which doesn't seem to be much of a problem in France. Well, I, so, well I, he- I heard something even more bizarre than that, basically, which was all about apparently how um, Reunion Island, which is a French territory somewhere, uh, is yeah. counted by our people as a very high level of COVID, but uh, it's something like 90% of our intake of what's going on in France is accounts for Reunion Island. In France, they only count it as 8%. And so yeah. that's apparently one of the reasons why it turned out like this. And if that's not deliberate, then it seems to me well, they're just being awkward. Well, no, that sounds more like uh, chaos, incompetence and confusion than uh, than conspiracy. But it is it is strange and i think um i think with the with the change in the number of infections now uh, and the inevitable shift in public opinion that will follow that i think the government can afford to to lead the public a bit more and uh, and drop those restrictions mm. Pretty, uh, pretty damn quick. Yeah, let's hope so. But as I say, if it doesn't happen until the middle of August, then an awful lot of people won't be able to go anywhere because they can't suddenly, you know, don't forget, a lot of people can't just book a holiday and go on Monday. You know, they need to go to their bosses and make sure they can get away. They need to book holiday time. I mean, it's very difficult. And that's why I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting a conspiracy. I'm just suggesting that I think the government are deliberately kind of pushing it all that way so that nobody can really do anything in in a massive way. But let me finally ask you about the vaccine passport scenario because um, Nadim Zahawi was pretty clear last week that even if uh, uh, it didn't go through Parliament, somehow the government would reserve the right to mandate it. I'm not sure how that works. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't that doesn't work. You can't do that. No. Um, no, I think vaccine passports are still uh, n- not going to happen. Mm. I think the government is talking them up as a way of trying to uh, trying to persuade young people to to, to get the vaccine. Mm. Uh, still, a, there's still an awful. Lot. I don't think there's vaccine hesitancy among young people. I think there's just a feeling among uh, a certain group of young people that uh, why should they bother? Yes. Uh, so they're, they're not they're not strongly motivated to do it. Mm. Um, this is an, obviously an attempt to try and nudge them in the, in the right direction, but the problem is, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. And I think people can sort of sense that. Yes, and I think once they realise that and, and discover that they're not really going to change that, then they move on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, they're going to vaccinate themselves by catching it, I suspect. Yes, I think so. And I mean, as we've seen, uh, having two vaccines anyway doesn't stop you from getting it, as Sajid Javid would show you, uh, and as Piers Morgan would tell you, uh, at some length. Well, and Andrew Mark. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, obviously it doesn't. But what uh, Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance said is that it does reduce your chances of catching it. 
and it actually also reduces your chances of passing passing it on. So the vaccines are are still effective in in slowing. Oh down yeah, the no spread. question, no question. But what I'm saying is, is that by by making sure that everybody who's had it. Uh, who's had uh, who's going into a venue has had two jabs it doesn't mean that you won't catch covid by going in there no well, but the thing is this is this is i think part of the problem with public opinion people want people want certainty and they want absolutes but we're dealing with probabilities here we're dealing with trying to reduce the chances of passing it on um and we're trying to reduce the spread uh, and it seems to be working who are uh, all these people that walk through life expecting certainty i mean i've never met anyone like that i mean are you sure well who are these idiots you need to broaden your social circle then, Mike. Oh, really? Uh, I've had about as broad a social circle as anyone in the entire planet, John. I mean, I've met people from presidents of the United States to beggars on the street. I don't think I need any instruction on who I should be meeting and hanging out with. But basically, yeah. most most normal people, apart from the mollycoddled middle class, you know, Apple <laughs> MacBook types like you, absolutely don't expect certainty about anything. Well, uh, we have this, this we have this debate every week, Mike, don't we? It's a good uh, one. Because... Whenever I quote an opinion poll at you, you say, oh, I don't know anybody who believes that. And yeah, the because I don't, is, because it's true. Well, yeah, but yours, you, that means your social circle has somehow miraculously self-selected itself to, uh, to, 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 to opinions that are well, similar to Well, it's presumably because all these people that get phoned up by YouGov never go out. <laughs> well, indeed. It's not my fault. I haven't been into their houses to meet them in plush parts of Putney and leafy Nine Elms, you know, which got flooded yesterday. I'm sorry to say Notting Hill got flooded. You know, what a terrible tragedy that must be for people. But the point is that, you know, nobody expects certainty in life. Nobody sensible does. The only people who do are the people who think they're so clever that they should be able to control everything around them. And nobody's that clever. I well, no, they are. You're about to have uh, Peter Hitchens on. Apparently, he predicted these floods. Um, I wonder. Well, he, well, he predict- well, well, actually, that's unfair. He didn't predict them, but he does know people who did predict them, and certainly oh. things could have been done about them before uh, they. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense to say that if you hadn't built a load of houses on a floodplain, they wouldn't have got flooded. Right. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, genius level prediction that is. Um, I'm, I'm, that's I'm, what I'm, we're dealing I'm, here. I'm looking forward to Peter's predictions of uh, oil and 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 uh, and locusts as yes. well. Well, I tell you what, he's been more right than you've been in the last twelve months. Yeah, get off! <laughs> <laughs> finally, got uh, you, finally got you to give me a rude response. Well played, thank you very much indeed, John Rental, chief political commentator at the Independent, a man uh, who likes certainty in life. Apparently, I mean, who wants certainty? The whole point of life is that it's uncertain. You can't have certainty. It doesn't work like that. This is Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio, which is now, of course, available on your TV. It's on Apple TV, it's on Rakuten, it's on Samsung TV+, Plus, Roku, and YouTube. Talk Radio TV is on the lot. For details, go to talkradio.tv or simply download the Talk Radio TV app from the App Store uh, and enjoy 24-7 coverage of the greatest radio station in the world uh, and the fastest growing one as well. Right now, let's talk to Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician and political commentator, of course, because uh, we are finally getting the news, even though the doomsayers are going, oh, it might just be a temporary blip, uh, that COVID cases are on the wane. Jamie, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. You good? Yeah, very well indeed. So, uh, what do you make of it all? Because I couldn't believe my ears this morning when I heard uh, on another radio station, I have to say, not the home of common sense, um, some um, 
doctor talking about how this could be down to the fact that schools are broken up and so there's not as many tests being done. It could be down to the fact that some people have gone on holiday. I mean, coming up with all manner of reasons why the numbers could be waning and that we'd have to wait another couple of weeks until we actually know for sure. Yeah, well, it, it, there could be many different reasons, Mike, but I suppose rather than put the doom gloom merchants saying, oh, it might start going back up again, let's embrace what the data is kind of showing, Mike. So mm. so if you look at what's gone on the last uh, several months, it, it all started in the northwest, this Delta variant, which we, we were talking about the Indian variant. And then a virus does what a virus normally does. Mm. It spreads across the country. And if you look across England, Wales, Scotland now, uh, in, in Great Britain, the virus is practically everywhere now. So if there comes a point where it can't continue to grow. So let me just explain what I mean by this. So if you think that cases will continue to rise say, in England, because if they concentrated in the northwest, you might then see that cases in the northwest remain flat. But if the virus then goes to the northeast, to Yorkshire, to the Midlands, then the overall England cases will keep going up and people will start thinking, well, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. But it's just as I say, it's because the virus spreads out with the virus now being all over the country and the rates are still highest up in the north and lowest down in London and, and kind of the southeast with the right with the kind of the virus spreading everywhere there reaches a time Mike where it can't continue to go any grow any further because right. it's already infected everywhere so so there may well be a factor with regards to the schools but with the schools closing there's less chance for the virus to spread we had the euros as well Mike the, the most important thing is the age groups of what's going on here mm. we saw this mass rise in younger people that is easing off now. Uh, I think we should embrace the good news rather than how all this doom, gloom, or things are going to go back up again. Right. Let's follow the data. Let's not start scaring people to say, well, oh, But what I find news. interesting, Jamie, is that whenever there is a rise um, and, a, and, a, and a trend sort of upwards in a number of infections, what you don't get is people saying, well, this could be because of this reason or it could be because of that reason or maybe we're testing too many people. You never hear anybody kind of allowing for the purposes of a, of a rise, which could be temporary, but they're always interested in talking about a fall, which could be temporary. That That's true, Mike. And I'm part of what we've seen over the last few months, we saw it before Christmas as well, is you get this surge testing and you start picking up kind of cases, whether or not these are real infections, whether or not people are actually ill or not, is another discussion, I suppose, because we have seen increases in testing. That then does lead to increases in cases. And if you then get a, a decrease in testing, it's not blaming and saying, oh, well, we get a decrease in testing, which is why we get a reduction in cases. Some people will say, that you get a decrease in testing as well because fewer people are going forward because they're ill as well. So yeah. you can't infer just because testing's going down that cases, you know, things might start going back up again. Right. I think you said some really good stuff in the data at the moment, Mike. We're not, we remember if we are peaking, we will be more clearer in the next week or so on this. It's probably too early to tell whether or not the opening of England is going to have any effect if it's starting going back up again. We mm. probably had the first weekend of, say, young people going out clubbing and, and, and the like over the, over the weekend. But I don't think. There's been a mass difference. My, you're in England. I'm in Wales, where we still haven't got the kind of all the restrictions opening. But you're probably out and about. I don't think we've seen a mass explosion of everything's different last Monday than not particularly. Last I mean, latitude was on this weekend, which I suppose some would say could be uh, some kind of an event which causes uh, numbers to go up again. But I've always said, Jamie, and I think you've agreed with me that you know, of course, numbers will go up and down depending on what people do. You know, it's a bit like the R rate. The R rate would go up because more freedoms were granted to people, and that was part of the model. So therefore, that's going to happen the same way that I'm surprised people aren't now saying, well, it's obviously uh, going down because so many people are self-isolating. Nobody's used that one yet, but I expect it will come this week. Well, we've, we've talked Mike, about the self-isolating and Julia, obviously, self-isolating at home. Mad. These mad rules. There's just absolute madness with the rules here, Mike. But remember now, if we are 
going to have an opening of the country. It is the best time to do it. You can't have an outdoor festival in the middle of winter. Mm. So if we didn't go for Freedom Day last week and Wales looking to follow in Scotland in early August, we were going to be waiting around until next year with regards to all of this. So so one of the, the I think the more important thing that we're seeing in the data the last few uh, few days as well, Mike, is younger people cases are coming down. But more importantly, kind of there's always a lag between older people catching the virus. We haven't seen the relationship between older people catching it in relation to younger people in the past. That'll be a vaccine effect. Mm. And the rates in older people are starting to kind of level off as well, which is good because it's generally the older people who will lead to the hospitalization. So we might start seeing hospitalizations. But again, we've spoken before, Mike, they're a fraction of what they were in the winter. They might start coming down and deaths are clearly nowhere near what they were when we had the relationship no. before as well. And, and what we know presumably as well about the hospitalizations is at least 40% of the people in hospital um, are people who have not been vaccinated at all. Uh, it could be as high as 60% in some places. So, you know, the bottom line is that if you are uh, somebody who is not terribly old, somebody who doesn't have terribly large numbers of, of uh, comorbidities, you know, you're not likely to end up in hospital, um, whether you've had the vaccine or not, are you? No, and, and, and the other thing as well, Mike, is many people are going into hospital and catching COVID and they're even continuing to happen. This is, and we still don't know, and the government hasn't published the data on this. There was talk about a few months about doing this, that how many people are going in hospital because of COVID rather than they've gone into hospital for some yes. elective surgery. Well, that's a, I saw that figure at the weekend. The I saw that figure at the weekend where, where, where in some hospitals it's as high as 40% of people who have, who have been marked as having COVID in hospital did not go in with it. No, and, and that's, a, you know, if you're talking about government policy, and this is all over the news every day, Mike, that is the big issue with the data. Mm. I think the, the latest thing I was hearing on the news this morning as well is kind of the vaccination. So if you just look at the vaccination rates, which is in the younger people, it's about 60% of kind of 18 to 24 year olds and uh, and 25 to 29 year olds, 60% of them have had that first dose of the vaccine now. And it's up to about 90% for some of the older age groups. What the government's worried about, Mike, is the, is the rate of the growth. So mm. it's only gone up 5% in the last two weeks. And when you look at the older age groups, when they were around 60%, it would go up 5% in about one day. So I think they're now talking about you can't go to university unless you've got a vaccine. This is just going absolutely madness yeah. with regards well, to Well, I wonder about this. I mean, John Rental, who, who I don't always agree with on many things, even he said he doesn't believe that they will bring these things in. He thinks it's all about trying to persuade younger people to get the vaccine. And when they don't bother, because inevitably a lot of them just say, well, we're not going to do it. Uh, they'll just give up on it because I don't see how they can make you do that. I don't see how they can make you do it to go to a nightclub. I don't see how they can make you do it to go to a football match. None of it makes any sense, really. And they also, I mean, vaccine passports, even the Labour Party have now said they're going to vote against it. So it's not going to get through Parliament. No, I don't see it getting through Parliament. Wales have said they're not going to introduce them. Nicola Sturgeon, I think, has been a bit quiet. I haven't heard anything about from what the worst situation is on this. So you can't also like, have a policy where... You need a vaccine passport to watch, I don't know, Bristol City. Right. But you don't need one to watch Cardiff in the in the away match when you're <laughs> over the border. It's just bonkers. And the other thing, Mike, are we expecting people, because you remember, if you think of London, the amount of tourists that come into London, go into restaurants, are we expecting businesses to start looking at the, the Polish app? Or well, this is the, the thing. This is the what, thing. What, I mean, I said this last week about Italy, because apparently in Italy now you have to show that you've got two vaccines in order to go inside a cafe, right? So what happens if you go there from here? You, does that mean you can't go in anywhere? Well, that's what's not being thought through with all of this, Mike. And people are talking about whether well, the EU are going to have an app for the whole of the European Union. Mm. But what about tourists that are coming in from the Far East, from America? There's mm. so many different countries. 
and we're not going to have one worldwide app with all the vaccine data in there because all the data protection rules and the other thing i i'm concerned about with these vaccine parcels mike as well is this this personal data with the data protection act etc mm. you're starting to give information to businesses which is quite sensitive yeah and if you if you say that you know if, if you can't go to a university lecture for whatever reason because you haven't been double jabbed as well people are going to start thinking oh you're an anti-vaxxer right. there could be many reasons why you're not having them so they haven't really thought this through i'm, I'm totally in your cap mike yeah. it's probably Kind of let's nudge them to try and get the vaccines yeah, in. I think so. Whether or not it will actually happen is another Because thing. exactly. I mean, also, who knows whether or not some of these businesses wouldn't harvest that data and flog it to somebody. Exactly. And, and, and thing, one of the things with, with data protection, Mike, medical information, is that the more extreme sensitivity things, where you've got extra protections, but just giving everybody information that, you know, Joe Bloggs has got a vaccine because they've had a vaccine passport. This person hasn't. I just think we're starting to put the burden on business. We, you know, we've we've had too much burden on business with all of the NHS track and trace. This is another thing that's going to put a burden on business. And I just can't see it working, Mike, with mm. regards to all these foreigners coming in, rightly so, for the economy and keeping it going. And uh, is the person from Sweden double vaccinated? You're just going to get a lot of forgeries mm. going on. It just seems to be and and been thought through very well, Mike. No, I think you're absolutely right, Jamie. Thank you very much indeed, as ever. Jamie Jenkins, independent statistician, man with his finger on the pulse, uh, the man who tells the truth about some of the data that's being collected uh, and makes it clear uh, what it actually means, which would be a really, really good thing if the government did that as well. But sadly, they don't always, do they? 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. We enter the last week of July and it's still kind of all over the place, isn't it? Masks are coming off in large part. Covid cases are dropping all the time. Traffic lights are flashing all over the place. And the pandemic continues apace. Even Julia Hartley Brewer had to do a show from home this morning thanks to the mad system which pinged her because of a plane she was on over a week ago. The world has officially gone mad, ladies and gentlemen. And today we expect to find out even more workers will be given exemptions from having to self-isolate because it's destroying the everyday lives of people and stopping commerce dead in its tracks. Almost as though... The government doesn't really want us to return to normal. Meanwhile, of course, the channel traffic isn't going down anytime soon. Boris Johnson's promising a crackdown on crime, which apparently will involve a police officer investigating your criminal case. How extraordinary. What a step in the right direction that is. 0344-499-1000. Coming up in this hour, Peter Hitchens joins us with his take on a great many things, including a big piece in the mail today, devastating health cost of lockdown laid bare, in which uh, a Daily Mail audit reveals 330,000 fewer hospital admissions for cancer, heart attacks, strokes, diabetes, dementia and mental illness since March of last year. If that's not a damning indictment of lockdowns, I don't know what is. Peter will also tell us what he makes of all the flooding that's been going on in Europe and here, and also why Dominic Cummings thinks he's bonkers and what he makes of that. 0344 499 1000. Also coming up in this hour, Chris Hobbs will join us to talk about uh, Boris's crackdown on crime, which he's going to announce tomorrow. Uh, does he really think that putting targets in for when you answer the phone at a police station is the right thing to do? Because quite frankly, there aren't any police stations left anyway, are there? 0344 499 1000. Listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. Uh, it is, of course, now on television. It's the home of common sense. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. And time to say a very good morning to Mr Peter Hitchens. Peter, how are you? Morning. Good to see you. Um, let's start with the mail piece today uh, on this uh, this audit of 330,000 fewer hospital admissions. I mean, we kind of knew it, but it's interesting to see a number being put on it. 
Well, we did know, and uh, in fact, I think you remember we talked about it. There were some academics who were attempting to study it uh, because there was, there was an argument made that people were staying away from hospitals and doctors mm. because they were afraid of contracting COVID if they went near them. And I think that that's true, but I think it's also the case that National Health Service did cease to provide a number of services which it had previously provided, and there is an enormous backlog as a result. And the reason why this is so important to me is because in so many of the arguments that I've had, over the strangulation of the country, which the government decided on its policy. People would say to me, oh, oh you just want people to die then. Uh, all you care about is money. Yeah. And I would say, well, absolutely not. This is not life versus money. This is life versus life. Strangling the economy costs lives, costs people medical treatment, uh, costs people important tests they would otherwise have had, which might have detected cancers, which uh, may now kill them when they wouldn't otherwise have done just, for instance, I don't think anyone could really seriously argue that the health service hasn't been very, very badly hamstrung by its own reaction to COVID, not least by the way in which its staff have been forced to self-isolate in very large numbers, and the way in which the already inadequate number of beds, and this is the result of policies of both Labour and Tory governments, has been made worse by the, the extra spacing imposed by COVID rules. So the whole thing has been has been dragging uh, dragging a huge chain of restriction during this entire period. And to, to separate this from the general government reaction to COVID seems to me to be a mistake. It was part of what they did. And part of the reason why I've always argued we had a perfectly serious and, and well-thought-out reaction plan uh, to a major epidemic or pandemic already compiled, and we ignored it and threw it in the bin in favor of the Chinese-style mm. uh, panic and, and mass quarantining of the healthy. And this still needs to be discussed. Did we did we take the right step, or, or did we need to copy the Chinese, or should we have stuck with our original plan? These figures underline to me the very strong case against the policy which we did follow. Yes, and interesting that we should bring Dominic Cummings into it at this point because uh, you wrote, wrote about him this weekend in your column yeah, uh, yeah. about how ridiculous it is for him to call you bonkers, which I think it is ridiculous. Um, well, it's, it's, I mean, just to say, there are people who can call you bonkers <laughs> and people who, who, who can't really. As it, if, if, if uh, the late Cyril Smith calls you fat, uh, it's not exactly a wounding blow. And similarly, if, if the lady in Paisley calls you intolerant, mm. it, it, it doesn't hurt. And I'm afraid that with Mr. Cummings, it's, it's rather hard for him to wound anybody by calling them bonkers. Yes, he does but appear I, I to be... He does appear to be a slight obsessive about what he's doing. But, I mean, do you take any note of what he has been saying? Because a lot of what he has been saying, although I find it tedious in the extreme, uh, is that basically um, the government was all over the place. They didn't really know which way was up from one week to the next. They were making policy kind of pretty much on the hoof, hoping for the best. Um, and they weren't really taking any account, as you've been saying for a very long time, of the collateral damage. Well, none but, his, but on the other hand, Mr. Cummings' view seems to be uh, that if he'd been in charge, then everything would have been done more quickly and we would have shut down the country more thoroughly and earlier and, and, and that way everything would have worked. How this argument still proceeds, I don't know. Right. And the evidence, particularly from, from the state of Florida in the USA and also continuing from Sweden, as it happens from Japan as well, is that shutting down your economy is not a particularly effective way of saving lives or reducing the spread of disease. Uh, but people still continue to insist, just as they insist that mask wearing has proven effective, to insist that these things work, even in, in the absence of high evidence that they do. Uh, I, 
my feeling is that Mr. Cummings has put himself entirely on the side of that faction in government, among government advisors, mainly composed of people who have no responsibilities to the electorate and therefore only have one responsibility, and that's to, to make to, to be as cautious as possible. Um, but he, he is, I think, it would be reasonable to assume. Uh, that if the any of the figures, which are themselves not in my view to be trusted, if any of the figures at the end of uh, August are showing increases in positive tests, increases in the number of people who die who've been tested positive for COVID, COVID who later die, increases in the number of people in hospital testing positive for COVID, if these happen, then it will be said that the relaxation that we're currently experiencing, such as it is, was a disastrous mistake. Mr. Johnson has, has repeatedly made this mistake, and it's time for him to go and be replaced by, ooh, let me think now, who might it be? Uh, uh, some political uh, figure who's been quite closely associated with Dominic Cummings. I'll leave it to your more Yes, he doesn't mention uh, who that might be, but I, I don't be surprised if this happens. If you've read Matthew Paris's very interesting column in The Times on Saturday, he reckons that Mr. Johnson is uh, in quite serious danger if, if this relaxation can be portrayed as a mistake. And I think that's true. Yes, well, interesting. Uh, I was talking to John Rental earlier on this morning, and he was saying that now that Sajid Javid is in the, the chair of health, as it were, uh, there's yes. now sort of him and Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson against the man that you, you speak of. So it's sort of <laughs> three to one rather than two two, which it was when Matt Hancock was around. So that's I'm why, supposedly, sure. we've had more lifting of the restrictions. I'm not sure about that. I think there is. I think that in general, ministers are terrified of being shown to have ignored or mm. failed to take uh, the most safe advice. And if, if it's said to go wrong, but again, I, I would like to re-examine the figures on which all this is based. We have no idea because you can't conceivably test regularly the entire population for COVID. We have no idea what the level of COVID uh, of COVID positive testing. Let's use the, the, the mm. word. Was, accurately as possible would have been during March and April of 2020 uh, during the actual the, the, the most severe height of the disease we don't know so we have nothing to compare it with at the moment all we have is is, is that a, a certain proportion of the number of people who are tested are testing positive mm. but they're a tiny proportion of the population and what does it mean if they test positive are they ill and then we have the next statistic of people in hospital uh, with COVID, well, if you we discussed this before, if you go to hospital, it's probably the best known way of, of, yes. of catching COVID that there is. If you arrive there without it, with a broken leg or or, or, or or a severe illness, you will very rapidly test positive for it. If you then die within 28 days, you will be recorded as a COVID yes. death. Because the next thing, COVID deaths are not deaths of people necessarily from COVID, but deaths of people who tested positive with it. But it, unless you know what else was wrong with them, the figure is, mm. it has no real meaning. And we, we constantly accept on face value these figures turned out by the BBC night after night after night. Was it, what, would you please also tell us uh, who's, who's dying with other diseases, mm. uh, who's in hospital with other diseases? And if we're going to have testing stations all over, my hometown is plastered with yeah. COVID testing stations. You can't go more than a quarter of a mile. Is there, anybody, is there anybody in them? There's more testing stations than ice cream bags. Yeah. But, I, I, but, but there are people going in them, yes. Uh, and and, and if, if you seek, you shall find, as we know. So, but, but what does this actually mean? And, and how many of these people, well, I still don't know. What was that 
footballer in the Scottish national team who was who, who was who, who tested positive yes. a few weeks ago. I still can't find out if he was ever ill. <laughs> well, he probably scared. wasn't. Pretty good chance well, he wasn't. I mean, Sajid Javid wasn't very ill, as he no. said himself. He had very yeah, few symptoms. Isn't it the point? I mean, he had very few. Do do lots of other people have any? It, it, what is it, until we know these things? Until we know what proportion of the number of, of tests are coming back positive, and then the, the fact that huge the huge effort is being made to test people doesn't you know it was great. People kept on saying test, test, test at the beginning, and I kept asking, well, why? Mm. Why is it so important to test? Does testing frighten the virus? And the, the answer well, is always no. It doesn't. How will it? How does it actually reduce the incidence of the disease? Nobody is thinking about any of this, and, and so when these figures, such as they are. Uh, or if these figures start to rise, as as they did at the end of last summer, uh, there is quite possibly going to be a major political crisis on the basis mm. of what? Well, on the basis, I no doubt they will say, well, of course, all of our previous lockdowns worked, so we'll have to have another one. But, I mean, interesting that uh, you, you talk about admissions, because I saw a statistic this weekend, in fact, which said that 40% of hospital admissions for COVID are counted However, they are people who went into hospital for something else and were then tested positive, just as you've said, and who are then put down as a COVID admission. But they're not actually a COVID admission because they've been admitted for something else. So that pushes the number up, first of all, immediately. Um, But also, the other problem I think that we've got at the moment is this kind of um, headlong um, misuse of data. I mean, I saw a story in the Sunday Times at the weekend where they were saying, oh, there's been a five-fold increase in pregnant women coming into hospital with COVID. And you're kind of going, well, that would probably be because a lot of them haven't taken the vaccine because the original advice was it's not for pregnant women. And certainly the AstraZeneca one is not for pregnant women. But now it seems to have been turned into, now if you're pregnant, you should get the jab. Well, I know. I I, I don't, I I wouldn't actually go so much to say I despair at the the brain donation of this coverage, but I, I... do think people should just be that little tiny bit more questioning. And the, the question also needs to be asked over and over again, was the National Health Service at any stage actually overwhelmed? And we hear of one or two individual hospitals which came under very considerable pressure, but what happened was that the NHS worked as it should, and people who would have gone to those hospitals were sent to others, and the, the, the burden was carried. We're constantly told that the NHS is under this threat of being overwhelmed, but the only overwhelming seems to have taken place is that is that which is is recorded in the National Health Service today? Is that mm. the, this enormous uh, organisation designed to try and keep us from getting iller than we already are uh, has actually been hamstrung in in, in in trying to do that for many many months and is failing to keep up with its basic tasks. Now I'm not going to use the word overwhelmed because I don't believe in panicking people. But it does seem to me that the NHS has certainly been damaged. Uh, by these events. And again, if these are the arguments being put forward to justify the shutdown of the economy, and if in fact the shutdown of the economy and society have done serious damage to the NHS and its ability to treat people, uh, then surely that balances the argument and makes those people who constantly say we must do this because the NHS would otherwise be overwhelmed, makes their point weaker. But again, this is a plea for reason and mm. fact and argument, which both of which seem to be driven yes. out. But if the NHS is overwhelmed because it hasn't got enough staff because they've all been sent home because of some ridiculous, you know, pinging system and because they haven't got enough beds because they've had to take some out in order to distance the beds from one another, that's an entire, that's an overwhelming of their own making, surely? 
Well, it, well exactly. But this is this is the kind of examination which I, here I am, here I, I Mr. Bonkers, and, and I'm saying this. And it, it, I can say it to my heart's content, and all that will happen will be I will be insulted and ignored. Uh, what is startling is that the failure of so many people in in my trade and in politics to observe or question these things. I, I'm, I'm not saying definitively that I am right, but I am saying definitively that I do not believe these issues have been properly examined. And here, and, and here we are. How is it that I can say this and say this here, and you can listen to it, and other people can? But in general, it will make no impact on politics or on the behaviour of the BBC, which is. A propaganda organization that had immense amount of power, and things will continue as they were. And that's why I raised this question how I came to be called bonkers in the first place when I was an industrial correspondent back in the late 70s and early 80s. And the reason was I stood up against the, the communists and the fellow travelers uh, among my fellow industrial correspondents, and I didn't do as they wanted me to do, or write as they wanted mm. me to write, or behave as they wanted me to behave. Well, okay, look back. Uh, at the late 1970s and, and early 1980s, look back at the stupid strikes which wrecked so much of British industry, the bad leadership of so many trade unions, and many of which have now disappeared or, or vanished up their own mm. uh, and as a result of the way they behaved then. And also look at this, this Soviet Union, which so many of those people were sympathetic to, and say, who was bonkers and who was right? And sometimes it, it, is, it, it is going to be the minority voice, the voice that doesn't run with which needs to be listened to. Yeah. I've got to make that plea here. At least listen to what I'm saying. I have. I, I, I do stand against tides. It's a. It, it's a gift I've been given. I think. I do stand against tides, and it, sometimes it's worth saying. Well, maybe just possibly, even if he is a minority, I don't like him. It might be worth listening to this point and seeing how the other side argue against it. But all the other side do in response is is it tends to be either ignore me or abuse me or accuse me of wishing in some way to kill yeah. other people. Yeah. No, the well, low well, level of the response, again, very like you know, calling, calling me bonkers in the, back in the 70s, the low level of the response is one of the things which persuades me that I, I may have hit upon mm, something. Yes, and those who, uh, who oppose you in this way also are incredibly non sort of scientific and, and, and unforensic in the way that they do it because they don't actually prove you wrong, they just say you're wrong and then well, move on. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I am wrong. I make mistakes. I mean, I can't. I, I, I made a silly mistake early on in this business about in some argument about um, about smallpox, um, and, and which haunts me to this day. A mistake made, regretted, and never repeated. And that's a mistake that I've made, and I've no doubt made others. But I don't claim an expertise. I'm not. No, it's what I what I try to do is to look at the expertise of others and try. To make sense of this, and also, it, no, nobody making a lot of people making pronouncements and decisions in this, including many of my opponents in the media, and all the politicians involved. They also they don't have scientific or medical qualifications, but it only matters whether you have scientific or medical qualifications as argument if you're on the wrong side. Yes, and yeah, nobody, uh, nobody questions. We're all capable of seeing whether something, whether an argument is being honestly and seriously made, or whether it's not being honestly. Yeah. No, nobody questioned the uh, efficacy of Gareth Southgate, a football manager, uh, when he said at the weekend that all young people should get the vaccine. But stay where you are, Peter. We'll come back to you. This is Talk Radio across the UK, online, on DAB+, and on the Talk Radio app. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray.
on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the home of common sense. It's now on your TV as well, talkradio.tv, or go and get the uh, the app of the app store, Talk Radio TV. It's easy to find. Peter Hitchens is here with us from the Mail on Sunday. Peter, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the flooding. I know you wrote about the flooding in Europe uh, before, but we are now the recipients of rather a lot of rain. Uh, a lot of parts of London certainly flooded yesterday. We've got apparently three more days of it. Um, You've said basically that we should have seen it coming. We have been warned that it would come, and yet nobody's really done anything about it. The particular thing about Germany, uh, interestingly enough, it didn't affect the Netherlands. And it must say something about the way in which Germany is is governed. Mm. Uh, There's no question, uh, and very senior hydrologists in this country and quite a few Germans in their warning system said they're baffled. Uh, that although the weather service and the hydrologists warned of approaching floods, so many German authorities don't seem to have evacuated people in time. Uh, Germany is not as well as well run a country as you think. I mean, the joke in, in Germany now is that if you want German efficiency, go to Switzerland. Hmm. Uh, I've had some remarkably bad experiences with German railways, which used to be superb, right. uh, but in recent years are rapidly approaching the standard of our own. Uh, the the argument I was really having was that so much of the coverage was was not news coverage or analytical, but dogmatic coverage. And people wanted to make the case, as people so often do with exceptional weather events these days, that in fact this was proof uh, that, uh, that we are undergoing a particular type of, of global warming. Mm. Well, we are undoubtedly undergoing global warming, and, and I never cease to point out it's unquestionably warmer in this country, for instance, than it was, uh, what, 30 or 40 years ago. And I, who can argue with it? I think a lot of other global measures suggest the same. That's not, that's not in question. But whether that is creating weather events which appear exceptional, because they always do, is another matter. I haven't seen, for instance, anybody producing any work to show that the recent very high temperatures in the Pacific Northwest of America was uh, were, were were actually linked to climate change, uh, nor have I seen any work suggesting the recent flooding uh, in Northern Europe was, was connected to, to climate change. People just assume it. And because they do this, and because that becomes the way in which the story is covered, the more important fact in the case of the German floods, which is why on earth weren't people warned in time to, to, to get out of danger, uh, doesn't get done. I was, it, it's, it, this is the, it's so much political coverage uh, is is actually based on a on a on a, on a template mm. that people follow. As a very good article many years ago by uh, Peter Oborn, uh, who described how when he went into political reporting, he couldn't get anything in the paper, and eventually he was almost in despair. And he went to one of his colleagues and said, "I can't understand this. I'm, this is, uh, I'm busy. I write. I'm, I'm constantly sending stories. They never give me. Said, well, what are you doing?" And he told them, "I said, well, you're missing out the cliches." Uh, the, uh, currently, the big crisis is John. John Major is in trouble. If you so every time you write a story, it has to be about John Major being in crisis. As long as you put that in the introductory paragraph, it'll get in. Right. And, and Peter Oborn followed this advice and immediately started getting splashes and, and page leads in his paper the whole time. And it worked yeah. because everything follows a cliche. And if you don't follow the cliche, then your stuff doesn't get used. And this is the nature of news. News isn't about people saying, "Oh, that's interesting. It's happened. I'll record it." It's about does this fit a, a particular agenda which is going on at the moment? And one of the really big agendas at the moment 
is 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 that the there is man-made climate change, and we have to we have to do absolutely everything to stop it, including getting rid of our gas mm. boilers, insulating our houses so we can barely breathe, uh, and, and destroying our economies. Well, that's what happened, I think, in the German floods. The people were more anxious to pursue the, the dogma than they were right. to investigate what was going on. Floods are not uncommon in Germany. The, 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 the rivers of the European continent are much bigger than ours and more ferocious, and they flood a lot. And you can see on the sides of buildings in historic German towns, the ones the RAF left standing, you can see the the marks of floods going back to the 14th mm. century. It's not new. Right. Uh, to make out that it's new is ridiculous. Yes. Our own flooding is, I mean, it, it, this is, there are all kinds of other issues, such as the, the decision to create wetlands and to refuse to dredge rivers, which used to be dredged, and the general failure, for, for instance, to, to do basic maintenance of ditches, which I think caused a lot of local mm. flooding, which used not to take place, not to mention uh, the government's obsession with building houses on floodplains. Yeah. And isn't it a surprise you build a house on a floodplain and the house is then affected by floods? Yeah. I mean, I know you couldn't, thought you couldn't make it up. Finally, yeah. I'll just add my two pennies worth in. I, I, lived, I had the misfortune of living in a house in Wiltshire that flooded three times while I lived there, uh, all because the farmer who lived behind, who had a field behind the house, decided one year to just completely plough it. It had been a sort of fallow field that had long grass oh, right. and horses used to graze there. But as soon as he ploughed it, the rain literally ran off it like it was concrete, flooded the entire village. Um, yeah, and I mean, again, a very simple reason for why it hadn't flooded before was because oh, it wasn't ploughed. It's uh, so much of the horrible flooding you see in, in, in Asian countries in South America is caused by the stupid massacre of trees. Which, yeah. which, those trees hold the land together. And if you if you cut them all down, then, then you get mudslides in the places where they used to stand. And it's right. a disaster. You, you would have thought people would learn, but they're so greedy. They yeah. no, that is, I mean, that's, a, that's an area of environmental policy where you you, you, you will struggle to find anyone more militant than, than I am. I hate people who cut down trees. I think they, uh, they should, in many cases, be prosecuted for yeah. it. There's far too much of it going on. But it, you can, I, one of my points is you can be very concerned about the environment without necessarily thinking that George Monbiot has got the answer to the universe. <laughs> yes, that's very unlikely to be the case. Peter, thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, talking about the floods. If you've been affected by them, I'd like to hear from you as well, of course, because there is obviously a reason why there is more flooding going on, it would seem, in London at the moment than there has been in the past. But it's not the first time it's ever happened, and it's madness to say, oh, it must be to do with climate change. got to be, hasn't it? Absolute rubbish. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's a very grey-looking day out there. Large parts of, uh, of the country are flooding. Uh, we're going to have three more days of it, apparently, over the course uh, of this week. It's going to start raining very heavily wherever you might be. If it's not raining now, it will be soon. And one of the problems with flooding, of course, is that it does terrible damage to property. It does awful damage to cars and it really does disrupt the living daylights out of anybody who suffers from it. What we saw yesterday was a load of railway stations getting shut down. We saw buses running into hugely deep puddles of water. We saw cars floating around. Um, an awful lot of this flooding uh, is as a result of the incredibly heavy rainfall bursts that have been happening, where four inches of rain has fallen in the course of one afternoon. And that can't be helped. But... 
surely there must be something uh, that the government can do uh, to make flooding less likely, uh, particularly if you live in a rural part of the country. I'd love to hear from you. If you have suffered from it, we want to know. 0344 499 1000. We've been talking a lot about the pandemic this morning, which has gone completely ridiculously mad. Uh, the traffic light system for holidays, the tourism business in this country as well. We've been talking about that. And also, of course, Boris Johnson uh, and his policing bill, which is going to be announced tomorrow, where he's going to tell us that more police on the streets, um, rings of steel around towns where county drug gangs are operating, uh, and actually individual police officers to help you with your investigation. He's going to change the face of crime in this country. Well, good luck with that, is all I would say. What we're going to do now is talk to Tony Smith, former head of the UK Border Force, because uh, there is a crisis currently going on, and it is a criminal crisis, but it's one that's coming from France. It's one coming uh, by boats from Calais and from the northern coast of Normandy, uh, where as many as 8,000 um, so so far uh, that we know of, uh, 8,000 people have come uh, this year alone. Uh, we expect it to reach as many as 20, maybe 30,000 by the end of the year. And the border force seemed absolutely powerless to stop it. Pretty Patel keeps making noises about stopping it, but yet it still goes on. Meanwhile, now we find out there's a TikTok video going around in which it says, for 20,000 quid, we'll deliver you to the shores of the UK. Marvellous, isn't it? 0344 499 1000. You listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet, now on TV as well. Talk Radio TV, the home of common sense. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Ian Collins is here from one o'clock. He'll be here to tell us just before that what's going on, of course. Let's talk to Tony Smith, though, a former head of the UK Border Force, now uh, involved in the private sector. Tony, very good afternoon to you. Welcome. Afternoon, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for talking to us. I mean, this has been a problem now for some time. Last week, it kind of got back on the front pages, back on the agenda of, of, of the main media channels of this country. Um, but you and I both know this has been something that has been coming, really, to this point, because it's now, for me, um, a, a total criminal masterminded enterprise in, in which it's, this, it's now as bad as drug smuggling, isn't it? Well, yes, Mike, it is. Uh, you're right. It's been going on for two or three years now. It actually wasn't an issue when I was in charge of the border force. Mm. Uh, Mike, most of the illegal immigration into the UK were coming in the backs of lorries through right. Calais. So in some respects, you know, we've been victims of our own success. We sealed up the port of Calais. It's much harder now to get in there. The migrants won't stop, though. There's big money in this, as you say. So they've resorted to the maritime route. And two or three years down the line, we haven't been able to stop it. And as you say, the, the numbers are getting uh, worryingly high and increasingly, you know, that's that's making the public eye. So it is a con it is an ongoing issue and ongoing for the Home Office and for the Border Force to try and stop these boats. And one of the things that I'm told by many people who live down in that part of the world is that what we know about is probably at the tip of the iceberg because an awful lot of the boats are landing in places like Dungeness, places like Pet Level, you know, places where there aren't perhaps maybe, maybe the Border Force uh, eyes watching them and people are just getting out of those boats and walking into the town. Yeah, there is some uh, suggestions now, Mike, that that is happening. We are now seeing more what we call beach landings. Yeah. I think when this first started off, you know, most of the migrant boats were very happy to be picked up by us yeah. and brought ashore uh, so they could claim asylum. But I think there is some increasing evidence of, of them moving along the coastline. We're getting, you know, landings up as far as Dungeness. Mm. The Border Force Immigration Enforcement are having to move our resources away from Tuckhaven to pick up, pick them up. We're increasingly working 
with the Coast Guard. And it, it is an ongoing problem and the numbers continue to rise. So, uh, you know, we are going to have to look very, very closely at our maritime security. I've worked in other countries like, you know, the US, Australia, uh, even in the Med, where there's a huge amount of resource dedicated to border patrol, particularly maritime patrols. And actually, Mike, you know, we haven't really, apart from the customs cutters we inherited when I was there, we haven't really invested that much in a UK border patrol before now. But uh, it's looking as though that is now becoming a major threat for us. Mm. I mean, I've seen footage, um, because I know it's not just in this country that we have a problem. I've seen footage from southern Spain, uh, where you can see boats landing there coming from North Africa. You've also, I've also saw, I saw an amazing piece of footage once uh, recently of uh, a load of people just literally swimming to Spain. I mean, coming, you know, sort of from Gibraltar around um, and, and, and just swimming. And, and there was dozens of people landing on a beach. It was extraordinary. Yeah, it's a global issue. And I, I mean, I quite often draw parallels with the EU-Turkey agreement, uh, Mike. I don't know how many of your listeners know about that, mm. but the EU are investing literally billions of euros in a deal with Turkey to stop people getting across into the Greek islands. You may remember 2016, yeah. dreadful pictures of bodies being washed up on the beaches there. So what did the EU do? Well, they invested a lot of money in Turkey and persuaded the Turks not just to take the boats back, but to stop them leaving um, Turkey and, and uh, actually to, to move the migrants back down into places like Ankara uh, and into camps where they would be processed. And that's the sort of arrangement we really need them to be pursuing with us mm. on, 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 on this new Western front now we're out of the EU. Why can't the French say, look, let's take these people back. It's a safe third country. We will move them away from uh, the French, northern French coastline. That's what will stop the business model and, and, and you know, stop the smuggling gangs yeah. because they don't really want international smuggling gangs operating, you know, in the Haute de France any more than we do. Uh, but the only way to do that is to stop the boats. And I'm afraid we haven't been able to do that because we haven't got a joint agreement with the French about what to do once people are actually on the water. So are you not very optimistic that this new deal, the £54 million that Priti Patel says she's going to pay the French to sort of do it better, if you like, uh, is going to work? It's not going to be the complete answer, I'm afraid, uh, Mike, because it won't stop the business model. The business model is come to northern France. If you're an illegal migrant, doesn't matter what your status is, come to northern France, give us some money and get in this boat. Mm. And they're still going to try and do that. The French might stop, try to stop more of them doing that. But whilst they're still being allowed into the UK and we're not returning anybody, the business model still exists, doesn't it? Well, it does. And from what I'm reading this morning about this TikTok advert uh, offering to bring anyone to the UK for 20,000 quid. Suggestions that that's all being run by Albanian criminals. And we've got a lot of problems with Albanian criminals in this country running drug rackets, but they're now obviously running people rackets as well. Yeah, you're right. This is increasingly lucrative and it's instant money for them. And it's not just across the channel. That's an added factor. But there is evidence that this is level three crime. Bodies are being moved right the way over through source and transit countries, multiple countries are, uh, to get into northern France. And, and, and that's the worry mm. for France and the UK is the more that this is continuing to succeed, the more that will come. And, you know, there does become a public threshold. I was around in 2002 when we had 100,000, Mike, 
on uh, in Kent. They were coming on the ferries then, but they were camping on the beaches, sleeping in the streets, yeah. threefold increase in the home office budget. I remember it very, very well. We stopped that because we did a lot more work on the French side to stop that particular route. I think we're going to need a similar investment mm. with the France to stop this one if we're not careful. No, sure. So what did Turkey do then in order to, I mean, obviously, they, they as you say, moved um, some of the, um, the migrants back down towards Ankara and to, to camps and things. But when they processed them, what happened then? How did they stop the, the actual boat traffic so that so the arrangement is that essentially you enter the turkish asylum process but right. you pay a vast amount of money for that might lot lot more we're talking about billions of mm. euros a lot lot more than 54 million but the arrangement is and it's still a fragile one it's renewable annually uh, and it could break at any time because it puts turkey in a very powerful position in their negotiating stance with the eu but essentially the arrangement is that anybody ca- coming across uh, onto the greek islands will be stopped and will be returned instantly to turkey they won't be allowed to claim asylum in greece and they will be moved inland uh, and they will be given turks will be given money to enable them to process their applications mm. and to house them in turkey right. uh, and that's really an arrangement that's been that's held up for now but it's a fragile one if that breaks we're in even more trouble because well, that's right. uh, because in know, the that, end that's the major I mean, in, in the end you can't really um expect that to remain constant can you because the fact is we have a refugee problem in this world and people are moving from north africa uh, from other parts of, of, of sub-saharan africa up through um, places like turkey i mean i was reading a piece at the weekend about lebanon and how drastic things are in lebanon and how terrible they are and how it's practically got failed state status all over again um, and the syrian refugees from syria are actually going back to syria it's that bad but you'd expect some of them to move perhaps west to, to turkey yeah, so what happens, Mike, we conflate two different issues here. You know, we conflate the issue of human smuggling across the English Channel by criminal gangs with people drowning from a global crisis. We have 80 million people displaced around the world. UNHCR asking countries to take people through resettlement schemes, you know, even though... Uh, you know, people say, well, we're not very generous here. We actually took 5,000 in 2019 from mm. these camps, mainly from Syria, which was the highest in the EU and third highest in the world. You know, countries like America, Canada, Australia, the EU need to step up and work with the EU to bring people who are genuinely in, in, in these. And there are lots of people that are genuinely in fear of their lives, need resettlement. But let's distinguish that from what we're talking about here is a 26 mile of waterway being run by human smugglers with people drowning between two safe third countries. It's really important mm. we try to split that debate out. I think that's what the legislation is trying to do, but we really need to work on that, I think. But the legislation is not going to even be in place until probably sometime late in the autumn, by which time the summer season of travelling will be over. There'll be another 10,000 that will have come probably between now and the end of September, middle of October. And also, uh, what sort of people are able to pay 20,000 quid to come from France to here uh, to settle in this country? Yeah, I, I think that's right. But it, the, what the law does uh, is at the moment, if you claim asylum in the UK, regardless of where you've come from, Mike, you know, how you get here, you go into an interminable process, uh, which takes years to resolve. And no never really means no. Mm. So we're never really sending any anyone back, you see. So what we're saying is if you come from a safe third country like France and you've spent some time there, maybe even claimed asylum there, uh, then you don't get into the same uh, benefits that you would if you were genuinely fleeing persecution mm. from uh, 
uh, you know, from a, a source or a, a country like uh, Syria, uh, like, um, you know, like Eritrea. There are mechanisms already in place for people like that that should be used because what's happening now, we're playing into the hands of the human smugglers who are making vast amounts of money at this and putting, you know, making life uh, misery. So this, this legislation won't be a panacea, I accept that, but it is a step in the right direction in terms of UK law, but we need international agreement to really fix it, Mike. Yeah. But what about border force and its facilities and its and its kind of manpower? What could border force be given to help their cause um, more than currently they they can? Well, that's a good question, and that, you know that's something that we have to decide whether this isn't going to be an ongoing issue. Is this going to be because the facilities that are in place for receiving migrants in Kent are temporary? We've got Tughaven where we've got tents and porter cabins. We've got a Kent uh, centre for refugees, which is overwhelmed at the moment. We haven't really built adequate facilities. And I did get criticised for saying we ought to bring the military in here. Uh, but those guys, you know, they, 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 they could build a reception centre in a day um, and actually have a proper uh, civilised mechanism for processing people. But I think there's a reluctance to invest mm. in a permanent structure and a permanent system for continuing to take greater, greater numbers through there when our ambition is actually just to, to make that route unviable, yeah. you see. So it is hard for the border force. I know a lot of them. They're down there now, immigration enforcement, border force officers, you know, in guest houses, waiting, going out on beaches. To You know, COVID is a risk for them. Uh, shifts are, uh, oh, some of the shift patterns are pretty dreadful, mm. but they have to be there as first responders to deal with them, and it is hard for them. Well, of course, and I, I have every sympathy with Border Force because all they can do is do what they're ordered to do, and I just wonder whether the orders they're getting are, are not the right orders because I had Chris Philp on the show last week, who's the Home and Justice uh, Minister, and I said to him, you know, what have you done so far? And he claimed that there have been something like 65 uh, prosecutions that have taken place with some of these human traffickers. And I said, well, what's happened to them? And he said they're in prison, currently serving sentences, right? Um, I then said to him, uh, when they come here, what happens to them? And he says there's no more people being put into hotels. They are now being put into uh, barracks, like Napier barracks and all that sort of thing. But there was a piece at the weekend that I saw uh, where there's a ho there's a hotel in Hythe, the Stade Court Hotel in Hythe in Kent, uh, which is housing um, 43 rooms full uh, of people who are described as children, but could be between the ages of 18 and 25. Yeah, and I just keep coming back to the situation I faced, uh, or we faced in the Home Office 20 years ago, actually, you know, where despite our best efforts, we had to commandeer a huge amount of guest houses right along the south coast. Mm. We had to put huge amount of money into Kent Social Services to cope with this. You're right to highlight the problem of unaccompanied minors and age dispute cases. That's been an ongoing. So there's nothing really new here. Uh, only that the numbers are not yet quite at the epidemic proportions they were then. Uh, because numbers on other routes might, because of COVID, you know, they haven't been coming in so mm. many of them through lorries or through air. So, you know, when the Home Affairs Committee discussed this recently, they said they made the point, well, actually, the Home Office can cope with these numbers because, oh, you're seeing increases on the channel routes, you're seeing decreases elsewhere. But if that were to go further, if that carries on at the sorts of numbers we're seeing now, I think we could reach proportions where we're into that territory again. That's why we've really got to try and do everything we can yeah. to stop these boats. I, I think there's no doubt that it will reach those kind of numbers because it is so lucrative now. This is what I was saying. I mean, it's as lucrative now, I'm told, as smuggling cocaine, smuggling people. And apparently, you know, it's easier to do because you're actually finding that when you get them to the other side of the channel, i.e. Britain, 
um, the, the authorities help you to get them in onshore and, and get them registered. So, I mean, it's actually less arduous, less risky uh, uh, than, than, than smuggling drugs now. Yeah, it, it, it is. Uh, a, a human smuggling is now increasingly uh, a, a very uh, lucrative commodity, not just here, but across the world. Uh, you're right to, to, to flag that. And the problem, as I say, is it's a vicious circle. You can see bigger boats. You can see investment going in by the yeah. crime gangs now. You know, they are they are putting more money into this. And that's because the profits are well worth it, because they're just simply saying, all you need to do is get in this boat and you achieve your ambition. Mm. You'll be in the UK and you won't be coming back. And I'm afraid that is the, the situation that we're in right, right now. And what's your understanding of how the people who are coming, 1,200 migrants, they say, arrived by boat last week, right? Uh, on, on, on all sorts of different methods um, to, to get to either Dover or, or Folkestone or wherever. But what's your understanding of where most of the people are actually coming from? Are they coming through Turkey? Are they coming through Western Europe? Are they coming from Africa? So there's three main routes into the uh, into the EU, through the Baltic, through the Balkans or across the Med. Uh, I think the big challenge at, at, at the moment is across the Med. You mentioned the Mediterranean routes across mm. from Africa, increasing evidence of migration up through Africa. Lots and lots of data for border geeks like me on the Frontex website, which will tell you where their points of penetration are. But the problem is, Mike, overall, the, you know, we know the EU border, the external EU border is porous. There are a multiple uh, crossing points for migrants uh, to get into the EU. And of course, once they're in the EU, Mike, they're in the Schengen yeah. zone, aren't they? The borderless right. Schengen zone. And so once you're into the EU, you can you can cross multiple borders without challenge right up until you bump into us at Calais. Uh, so there is a real problem with irregular migration into the EU. The numbers aren't as bad as they once were. But they are still pretty bad. And the ambition of a lot of these people that are coming into the EU still want to come to the UK for a variety of reasons. And the way this should work, you shouldn't get to choose which country you want asylum in. The idea behind the 51 Convention, you are fleeing persecutions. Of course, we don't expect you to pick up your passport and apply for a visa if you're escaping from, you know, from persecution. But on the other hand, we would expect you once you get to a safe country to go make yourself known to the authorities there and get protection there, not to cross multiple borders to because you just quite like, excuse me, the idea of coming to the UK. Yeah. Well, exactly right, because as much as you uh, mentioned earlier, when, when some of those Greek islands were kind of overwhelmed by people, um, I understand now there's a little island off the coast of Sicily where a lot of people come from North Africa because it's the first kind of land point that they can get onto. And so, oh, look, now we're in the EU. Yeah, Lampedusa uh, is a problem. You're right. There's a number of crossing points and, and, and a number of these source countries, uh, uh, entry points into the EU simply can't cope. They're in an even worse position than we are in, in Kent in terms of dealing with those volumes. And so they do tend to release people uh, into the community. And as I say, once into the EU communities, then they can pretty well do where they like and go where they want to. Yeah, I know. Shocking state of affairs. Tony, appreciate your expertise. Thank you very much indeed. Tony Smith, former head of UK Border Force, still involved in much of the, uh, uh, the policing of the borders of this country uh, and of the EU European Union as well. But this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. If 1,200 people came last week, and that's the number that come every week, that's 10,000, isn't it? by the end of, say, September. And that's another 10,000 on top of the 9,000 already here. That makes 19,000. And that's only mid to late September. So you can see how big of an effect it's going to have. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.